that Jesus preached in this sermon. We've gone through the other six. Uh, we've had a kind of a long run with Bob uh, preaching, I think, about five sermons in a row, which hopefully that wasn't the reason that uh, he's not feeling well now. We might have overused him, but uh, I, I know that isn't. He's, he's, he's got some uh, health things still going on, but uh, we, we try not to have him on that long of a run because I know that's taxing on someone. Uh, in fact, chapter 23 is the last public sermon that Jesus preaches before his arrest and crucifixion. A few days later, after this sermon, he's arrested, and by the weekend, he's been tried, he's been sentenced, and his sentence has been carried out very quick. Um, you know, I, I was involved in the, the legal system, at least on the federal side, well, on the state too, on a lot of ways, uh, for many years, and things did not go this fast in the in the criminal justice system. Uh, but here, uh, it happened very quickly. Jesus is preaching again, or against the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and scribes. We've already discussed who they are in the previous sermons, so I'm not going to go over that again. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 23, Jesus warns the people to stay away from these leaders not to follow their example because they're teaching and they're living a false religion. One that is foreign to what the Scripture teaches. Then from verses 13 through 36, Jesus condemns the religious leaders directly. He addresses them. And at the end of the chapter, that will be covered by Alan next Sunday, Jesus ends this chapter and this sermon with a lament over the consequences of the unbelief of Jerusalem, which is the unbelief that is the product of false spiritual leadership. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. To help us to understand that a little better, a lament, it's a, what a lament is, its synonyms would be wailing, moaning, weeping, crying, sobbing, that type of emotion. That's what a lament is. Jesus has already used the word woe six times in this section. Woe is a word that it's almost impossible to translate from the Greek into English. But it's a very guttural cry. It's a sound that's uttered from, the deep, from deep within a moment of pain and grief. Some of you have probably experienced that. Maybe during the loss of a loved one. The shock of that. Jesus is pronouncing this curse on the religious leaders. This is a divine judgment that's pronounced on the religious leaders of Israel who have not only rejected Jesus, but had led the people to reject Him as well. Seven woes. This sermon is the most severe words that Jesus ever uttered that are recorded in the Gospels. They are an expression of sorrow and warnings of punishment spoken by Jesus to the leaders of Israel. And this last one, the seventh woe, is the most damning accusation of them all. 
So let's begin looking at them. If you turn to chapter 23 of Matthew, we'll start reading in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of, I'm probably going to not say this correctly, but it's what I'm going to hopefully consistently say, uh, Barachiah, whom you mur- murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is again calling the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites. They are pretenders. And he identifies the religious leaders as the true sons of their ancestral fathers who killed the prophets of God who had been sent to them over the centuries. During Jesus' time, there was a period known as the Second Temple Judaism which was known for a dramatic increase in monument construction. The people would not only build new monuments, but they would decorate the tombs of the prophets. When I read this and and started looking at it, it kind of reminded me I've never been to the Holy Land myself, and this particular thing is one of the reasons why. Is it seems like the, the Catholic Church in particular, but the earlier church, uh, went and built temples and built monuments and built these great elaborate things over these supposed locations where various prophets or Jesus or anyone else that they were able to identify locations of were. And they built these things and kind of made a tourist trap out of it in my uh, mind. And I think that's a little bit of what we can look at was going on at this particular time. Elaborate monuments, having been built over sites that claim to be the resting places of that person or or whoever they can identify. And it actually leads from the way this is written that they did know where some of the locations were that some of the past prophets were buried at. Uh, So some of these locations may have been actually accurate locations. But they were really being built to show how religious and pious the believers were, or the builders were. And they apparently were claiming that if they had lived at the time of the prophets, 
that they would have obeyed the prophets instead of joining with their forefathers and condemning them and killing them. But Jesus knew their hearts, even as he knows ours. He knew that they were already in the process of planning for his death. By rejecting Jesus, these men are following in the footsteps of their ancestors. And in fact, are worse. For in Christ, they have seen more clearly. I've often wondered, and I think I've shared that uh, before, how anyone who could have been present at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, and especially were able to sit under his teaching, could have possibly missed who he is, or to hear what he spoke, and not to respond to his message. But yet we see that that happened all the time, especially here in this passage with the spiritual leaders rejecting him. And I think it's something that we can look at this passage and take to our own heart and realize that, but for God and the Holy Spirit illuminating our own minds and hearts and opening our eyes and opening our hearts to the message, we too would be rejecting the Messiah, rejecting Christ. So it's only for that reason that we do. But here are the people of Israel, and particularly the religious leaders, who have been awaiting the Messiah to come for centuries. And they are blind and cannot see. And they're deaf and cannot hear. Jesus says of himself in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Many of the religious leaders did not see the light. Jesus in verse 26 of chapter 23 here says of them, You blind Pharisees. He knows that they have rejected him. They cannot see him for who he is. And all the people that God had sent to them to bring his message of redemption and life had been murdered by their ancestors. All the righteous persons from the past, from Abel to Zechariah, were murdered. In verse 32, Jesus tells religious leaders, because they have witnessed against themselves that they are sons of those who murdered the prophets, they should fill up the measure of their fathers. In other words, by rejecting Jesus, they will complete the ancestors' sins. They are scheming to kill him, and it's like he's telling them to get on with it, to go ahead, carry this out. With these words, Jesus is overtly resigning himself to the fact that they are going to take his life. And in doing, they will fill up the full measure of the murderous attitude of their fathers against God's messengers. 
on themselves. Verse 33 gives them a glimpse of the punishment to come. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How did the prince of lies, Satan, first appear to Adam and Eve? He appeared as a serpent, remember? Jesus calling them serpents and a brood of vipers is to call them followers of Satan. What a harsh thing for these people to hear in their own ears because they think they are so religious and so much more perfect than everybody else in, in following the law and worshiping God. But here is this man calling them followers of Satan. These religious leaders would have quickly followed their ancestors in their killing of the prophets. And Jesus knows that. So regardless of what they're trying to do in the public eye, building these monuments, painting the the monuments and the tombs, showing people how righteous they are and look at the money we spent and the time we spent doing this because we're honoring the our forefathers, we're honoring the prophets who came in the name of the Lord. They would have been in the leading of the pack at the time that those prophets were killed. They are worse than their fathers. And because of what they really are, Jesus condemns them to hell. That's pretty strong words from Jesus. I think this helps us to understand how much he detests hypocrites and false teachers that he's been talking about in this section, that he condemns them to hell. But what a gracious Savior we have. Because right after that, even though in some ways it further piles on the guilt, Jesus reveals additional opportunity for them to repent. Verse 34, Therefore I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And you know what? That's exactly how it happened. Read the book of Acts. Look what happens after Jesus is risen from the dead and returns to heaven. And the church is given birth. And what takes place with the disciples and the followers of Jesus who traveled to the known boundaries of, of the world at the time, witnessing for Jesus. And many of them met just what Jesus said would happen to them. They were persecuted. They were flogged. Some were crucified. 
and many were killed in, in other ways. These spiritual leaders could have repented and turned from their ways. Some we know did, or can at least assume they did from various scriptures, but many did not. Those who continued to lead the people astray will have the righteous blood shed on earth on their heads. The blood of all martyrs from the past, from Abel to Zechariah, according to Jesus. The Hebrew Bible, not the one that we are using here, the Hebrew Bible, began with the book of Genesis and it ended with Second Chronicles. That was what encompassed their Bible. Jesus here identifies the first and the last righteous martyrs in the Hebrew Bible by mentioning Abel and Zechariah. Genesis 4 details the death of Abel. And in 2 Chronicles 24 are the details of the death of Zechariah, who is identified as the son of a different person. However, the circumstances of his death are very similar to what Jesus stated here. And a few commentaries I read actually brought up some, some different points. One, that uh, the Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24 was either not the right Zechariah, even though the circumstances were the same. And it was actually the Zechariah who wrote the last book of our Old Testament, which is of the same name or that the one in 2 Chronicles 24 would be a descendant of, of uh, that Zechariah, so therefore would, uh, would be the case. But either way, we have details that Jesus is laying out here, and this person that he's talking about died in the manner that he died. Jesus concludes this passage with verse 36. All these things will come upon this generation. Jesus was anticipating the nation's continuing rejection of the gospel. He's God. He knew their hearts. He knew what was taking place. Their refusal of the Messiah ultimately led to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Jesus said that this would happen in the beginning of the next chapter when he says in verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. According to the history of this region around Jerusalem, the Jews revolted against Rome in AD 66 and in AD 70, the Roman general Titus forced his way into the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the city walls and the temple and literally took every stone off of the other on the wall and on the temple and even tore up the foundation of both. When he was finished, not one stone was sitting upon another. The city of Jerusalem and their precious temple laid in ruins. 
that would be the historical conclusion for that generation. We can look in history and see that this took place the way it did. But I believe that Scripture also teaches of a future judgment, one that all who have rejected Christ at the time of Jesus, before Jesus was even here, and all who have come after Jesus, everyone who has rejected Christ will face a final judgment. The religious leaders here will face their God someday in the future and be eternally punished for what they have done. So they have suffered in their lifetime by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but they will suffer again in the final judgment. These men that Jesus is condemning were guilty of keeping people out of heaven. That's what they were really doing. By the way they taught, by the way they exampled, they were keeping people from coming to Christ, to the Messiah. They were doing opposite of what spiritual leaders are supposed to do. And that is to bring people into heaven. They subverted the truth. They were pious and used the people for their personal gain. The Pharisees and the scribes did all that they could to send the people to hell. All the things that the Pharisees did were opposite of what they should have been doing. I think there's something that we can get from this passage that is more than just historical fact that ended in A.D. 70. That those who are spiritual leaders among us today, pastors, teachers, evangelists, Bible college professors, seminary professors, anyone who's in a, in a capacity to be teaching the Word, we are to be able we, are, we should be pointing people to Christ and be faithful in our teaching and how we handle scriptures. All these roles have that responsibility. I tremble at the thought of getting up here and teaching something that is wrong or in error. My prayer is that what you hear from my lips that I say Scripture's teaching is the truth in the clear gospel of Christ. That's what I desire. That's what I strive for. Not hidden mumbo-jumbo. I'm not here to tickle your ears or to tell you things that you might want to hear, but that I try to teach you what Scripture actually says and how we're supposed to live. And to point you to the Savior that we all desperately need. And even those who are not in one of these roles of pastor or teacher, so anyone else, this includes all of you, 
All of us that are here, we all have responsibilities in this. You need to make sure that you are in a Bible-believing church and a part of one that does teach the truth and points people to Christ. You need to study and know your own Bible so that you can test what anybody up in this position or in any of the teaching positions that we have, that you can test what they're saying and teaching compared to the Scriptures that we have before us. And make sure that what they're saying is what Scripture says. But you can't do that unless you're also being diligent with your studies of Scripture. And being in those, those uh, Bible studies is important. Being here to hear from uh, the Word on a Sunday is important. But it's equally important for you to also be studying on your own. You need to hold the elders and teachers here accountable. Question us if we say something that's not clear or accurate. I can assure you that the elders here are but men. But I can also tell you that we are all men who speak, who try to seek to speak the truth, and that we do covet your prayers and efforts to hold us accountable to teaching accurately and to teach the truth. Some of you will probably be moving in the near future. When that happens, I hope that you will continue to look for church homes wherever you are going that teaches the truth. That it's not just a place that's convenient because it's down the street, which I have to say, this is pretty nice being just up the street from the church. But... Uh, that isn't always the way it should be. It, you need to be in a church that you'll actually grow in, that you'll hear the truth preached in and taught and exampled and lived out in the lives of not only the leaders, but the, the, the members that are part of that church. So we all have responsibility in, in, in this. Not only the spiritual leaders to to speak the truth, but for you to hold us accountable to that and make sure that that is what's being taught. I was talking with uh, Alan briefly before um, we started the service this morning, and one of the things that I, I told him that I, uh, I probably should make sure to uh, point out is that when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the letters and the books that make up our Bible, in our studies, one of the things we need to make sure we, we are careful to try to understand to the best of our ability is what was the original speaker or the writer trying to say to the original hearers? What was Jesus wanting the scribes and Pharisees, to hear him saying. 
And sometimes that is just a historical context. I think there's a very historical context to the seven woes that Jesus just preached in that in that circumstance when the temple and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. That was, as he says in 36, all these things will come upon this generation. Those people who were alive at that time that he was addressing, most of them were probably still alive in AD 70 when that took place. But then we can look at, because we have the luxury or the blessing to have the full um, New Testament. Remember, they didn't have all these other books behind the Gospels. In fact, at the time, all they had was the Old Testament books. But we can look at the New Testament as a whole, and the book, the Bible as a whole, and look through those glasses to see things that pertain to, to the future and not just in the historical. And I think that's why we can look at the understanding that there is a final judgment that these people will face once again and that anyone who rejected Christ in their life will face sometime in the future. But just as Christ kind of gave them a second opportunity by sending more prophets and more disciples and more people after he left to continue bringing the word. He continues giving us, if we have been rejecting Christ, opportunity until our death to hear the message of redemption, to hear about Jesus and have that opportunity to repent and come to Him and confess Him as our Lord. And our prayer is that everyone that we know, and especially that make up Redwood Christian Fellowship and our extended families, have accepted Christ and not rejected Him. But we also know that that's probably not the case. So I call upon you that if you have not, do so today. Don't keep rejecting Him. Don't face that, that final judgment that's to come. You don't have to. So don't do that. When we go to communion, that would be an opportunity that if if you would like to know more about Jesus and accepting Him, you can come forward and talk to one of us and we'll pray with you and get with you and show you what the Scripture says about that. But don't leave today without taking care of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your words in the form of this Bible that we have before us. Thank you for the ability that we have through the Holy Spirit to be able to read and understand your messages to us. Thank you for salvation and for the continued work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us, those of us that you have saved. 
We ask that you'll continue this work until the day you return for us and take us home. Make us, O Lord, into the men and women who seek to serve and follow you without reservation and without hesitation. Help us to be diligent, not only in our own Bible studies, but in encouraging each other, especially our spiritual leaders, to seek the knowledge and the wisdom and understanding that can only come from your word. And we pray, Father, for anyone who may not know you as their Lord and Savior that may be here today. We ask that you will convict them, that you will show them that they need Jesus and help them to respond. May you be praised, receive honor, and be exalted by what takes place here today and in the lives of all your children that are here at Redwood Christian Fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team. Ushers, if you'll come forward and pass out the elements. Hold them and we'll take them together uh, after everyone's been served.